Welcome to the Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. With Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder, we explore the brain God has given us and what we need for a healthy, transformational community of faith. So now we're we're back with Jim Wilder to talk about the the third the third aspect of healthy soil. And the first two, we had joy, we had chesed, and then soil ingredient number three is group identity. How does group identity work to form healthy soil? Well, a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about apoptosis in the brain and it's that process in which the brain kills off part of itself that is either not being used or isn't needed anymore. And there's one period at uh, age four. And then there's this other very significant one at age 12 to 13 that we call adolescence. Hmm. And at adolescence, um, the coming into adolescence, your brain is pretty stable if it's been raised in a healthy kind of way. It's joyful, it's peaceful, you like people, you get along with each other. But now, suddenly the brain uh, starts to kill off its stability circuits. It makes itself unstable so that I'm unable to handle life alone anymore. Otherwise, we'd just go on being pretty much independent kinds of beings. Um, And we certainly wouldn't put up with the aggravations of um, uh, selecting a mate. Hmm. Uh, but then uh, the um, sex hormones come in and huge amounts compared to what they've been before. And they're an irritant to the nervous system. So now uh, not only are we unstable, but our nervous system is being irritated all the time by these things. And we need somebody who's glad to be with us and will help us uh, to go through life. And we so we need suddenly to be part of a group. So your brain is actually configured so that prior to age 12, your own survival is the most important thing it knows. And even if you wanted to give your life for someone else, uh, you couldn't do it. Your brain just won't let you do it. Hmm. After age 12, 13, your group identity, your people, and their survival becomes more important to your brain than your own. So now what matters for you is, will my people be able to survive? Um, And if I have to give my life in order for them to do that, um, your brain is prepared to do so. So it's like your individual identity was being formed for 12 years and now it's strong and it's important. You know who you are, but now you're taking one step further. Who are my people? Uh, the people who help me be who I'm supposed to be, the people who give me examples, the people whose existence matters more than my own. And those people will shape my identity and my character and I'll do everything I can for them. Now, cults tend to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, the church 
then the way they take advantage of it is they substitute their cult leader for having Jesus in that position. Mm-hmm. Right? Although they always talk about it as Jesus. I mean, Charles Manson's followers called him Jesus, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but being called Jesus doesn't make you that. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, who are my people uh, is really understood pretty well in the non Western world. But it's often understood in tribal ways. And so a a number of people who are in in tribal areas talk about becoming part of the Jesus tribe. I've become part of a new people that understands ourselves in a different kind of a way, whose existence is more important, uh, survival is more important than my own. And, And it's the central attachment figure in that group that defines what kind of a group it's going to be. So if we were, as a church, of people who have a very strong, loving, joyful attachment with Jesus, we could take that apart, right? Mm-hmm. Do we have a loving, joyful attachment with Jesus, or do we run around trying to follow rules and, uh, you know, not displease God and say, so, well, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, but I, I have no sense of his being part of my life. You know, the, you know, this is the, the shift going from we believe all the right things, but um, as Job said, I had heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my eyes, you know, and experienced God. Job's faith changes very much, and the same thing with the presence of, of God in our life. If we actually have a relational sense of God being with us, um, that is reflected in the people around us. When they look at us, they say, yes, I, I see, I'm beginning to see you the way that God does. You're one of our people were, you know, before you weren't. So uh, Peter says, once you were not a people, now you've become a people. That's in, uh, I think, first Peter chapter two, this idea, your brain is looking for a people that you would say, express the identity that I want to have. I'm so attached to them that their survival is more important than my own. And now you think about it, your average church fight or your church going from church to church, looking for the best, uh, you know, show for this week or something like that. There's no attachment to each other. We're just in there for, uh, you know, in a sense, worship has taken us away currently from relationship. Now Mm -hmm. worship has, the current focus has increased our joy with God a little bit, but it's often not interactive. It's just our, you know, expressing our feelings to God and, but not building those with other people. And here's an odd thing about the brain. God can get some joy started, but your brain doesn't really exercise it until you use it with another person. So to get Mm. God into your brain and character, you have to take what you've experienced with God and do it with someone else. So one of the things that we do at some of our events and training is we have people sing to each other. Hmm. Now that used to be very, very common in the church. It disappeared. Uh, And then we went to singing about God and about each other, but not to each other. And now we went to singing to God, but the, the idea of singing to someone else about you know, I love you and care about you um, is uh, is really strange. Michael and I started trying to teach this to the 
the people that we were meeting with together and testing these, um, you know, the theories in this book, we had to try them out with people. So yeah. we had a group of about 20 to 25 people meeting in his basement. And I tell you, the first night that I suggested to them, we were going to sing to each other. Uh, not only could we find very few songs that anyone knew, I don't mm -hmm. think we found anyone that, ever, that, uh, that everyone knew. We had to, you know, teach them songs, how to sing to each other. Um, and one of the songs we sing is, I will help you love your enemies. Um, uh. See in them what God can see. Uh, it's it's a, a altered verse of, of some other song about brother, let me be your servant. It was how it started out. But we are singing those things to each other. I want to have a relationship with you. And mm -hmm. the right side of the brain, which is nonverbal, will not listen to words, but it listens to songs, poetry, and voice tone. Oh, so if I sing to you something, um, and Paul tells us that we should correct one another with psalms and spiritual songs, right? Mm -hmm. So his says, when something's going wrong in your relationship, sing to someone. Now, when was the last time you experienced that going on in, in correction in church? The only example I can think of is like singing to children. Yeah. Like, that's still fairly common of like singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star or You Are My Sunshine to kids. But I had never thought that that's a practice that we, we let go of to adults. Yeah. Uh, and yet Paul instructs the church to correct one another and by singing to one another so that that whole thing would get into your right brain the fast track the master system if you know if it's on your face if it's in your voice if you're singing your master track will listen to that if i quote to you a verse and i tell you what you should do it goes into the left side of the brain wrong side of the brain for creating that connection attachment so who are the people who have the right to sing to me who I really am and how we should really act is, a, is the part that builds the group identity. Now, talking about singing to children, when my brother and I used to fight when we were little kids, mm -hmm. hard to believe, of course, that any kids would fight with each other. But uh, My kids never do. I'm sure not. Uh, but we did. <laughs> and when my mother would hear us outside, she would begin to sing, be ye kind to one another, be ye kind to everyone. And my brother and I would look at each other in just irritation, like, oh, no, she's singing to us again. <laughs> we kind of felt like we still wanted to fight. But there was something about that singing that by the time she was done singing the song, he and I had, you know, like, now we just can't fight. Um, we'll have to work this out. Hmm. Uh, and she never told us to do that. She just sang the song from inside the house. We'd hear her voice. And um, I never thought about it. But then when I was uh, became assistant director of the counseling center, they gave me the job of firing everybody. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. And people would say that the day I fired them was one of their best days at work. Really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, but the way that I went into it was thinking, you know, this person just isn't having, you know, they're not being blessed. 
they're not being a blessing in this context. It's not the right place for them. There must be a kind way to explain to them that, you know, there's a better place God has for you than, than working here. Let me find out what you're suited for and we'll help you find the place that you'd, you'd be much happier and, and, and things would work for you. Well, I never thought about that, but until I reflected back on the singing that my mother had taught me that every time things aren't going well, there must be a kind way to resolve this. And yeah. uh, it be, just became part of my character. So I, I didn't think about her singing. I didn't even think that there was anything odd about it. I just felt like, you know, there must be a kind way out of this. And people really, uh, you know, in a sense, appreciated and not the being fired so much, but helping them find a better place to fit into uh, their life. So these things have a profound effect on our character, and uh, they're how we build a group identity. And again, we've just not been thinking about that as a church. Right. And so that singing that your mom did to you and your brother, it so it sounds like it, it engaged that right side of your brain, which like internalized as a group identity of this is who we are, mm-hmm. even though your left brain may not even process that, that that's what was going on. And so if we're serious about forming group identity around who we are in Christ, we, th- this is a tool that we can't overlook. Yeah. That, I think that's why so much of the scriptures are actually in poetic form. Yeah. The uh, whole book of it, Psalms. Yes among others. And uh, so this talking to each other this way, but even having the sense that we're building a lifetime attachment, God just does not build temporary stuff. He builds for eternity. Mm -hmm. So if he put us in each other's life, there's, uh, um, you know, the part of our current idea of salvation is just a decision we make. And after that, everything's fine. We, mm-hmm. we rarely think about it. We've become part of a people. And yeah. now the, the growth and protection of this people, that's like a family to us uh, has become a priority uh, for my life and for the people around me as well. And so if we can communicate that with, our voice tone, our faces, our singing, and by creating safe ways to build joy. Uh, and, and safe ways to build joy means that we're essentially protective people. Mm-hmm. We look at other people's weaknesses. We either can exploit them or we can protect them. And we have to teach each other how are the good ways that we protect things. How do we make it safe for little girls to smile at everybody at church? Mm-hmm. How do we make it safe yes. for... Um, you know, people in church to to just be glad to be together, you know, and right. and our wounds make that unsafe. But as a group, we have to consciously figure out how do we do that, and and how do we take people that are just not liked much by society um, in, in America? You know, the the white and black divide and. and church time they often say that 10 o'clock on sunday mornings is the most segregated hour in america how do we make it safe for people to look at each other and say well you once weren't my people but i'm now learning to form an attachment with you to to see you as my people because i see in you what god is doing Mm -hmm. and we can 
that we can rejoice in that together. We are, you know, cultures don't make this happen. Yeah. So the church has to be something the culture can't be. Uh, and, and if that isn't in our soil, we'll just grow independent people that look a lot like our culture. In this episode, Jim Wilder explained how our group identity shapes the choices we make. This group identity is formed most radically during adolescence, but continues to be shaped through adulthood. In the next section, I'm going to discuss with Michael Hendricks how churches can make the most of adolescence to shape disciples, how singing is used to form believers, and how to build an identity that remains distinct from culture. The third ingredient of healthy soil is a strong group identity. And from talking with Jim, it sounds like that strong group identity is really fed and reinforced by the voices we listen to. It's it's like that attachment builds and we start to want to become like the people that we're listening to. Yeah. And as I've just been observing in our modern culture, there are talking heads, whether it is on a TV program or a radio show or even in something like a podcast, that politics seems to be kind of the biggest driving force of this. Um, and that talking head becomes, from a Christian perspective, a discipler of people in the church. And I've seen people that I know and love start to sound more and more like the talking heads that they're listening to <laughs> than looking like Jesus. Yep. And so there's almost like this fight for who gets to disciple the people of Christ. Is it going to be the church, which has typically an hour or two on Sunday, and maybe if you're lucky, sometime during the week, versus these ubiquitous talking heads that have hours and hours and hours of content. Is that a fight the church can win? Or is it something that we just need a totally different strategy for, for the people? Well, I think the church can easily win that fight. And I think uh, getting our group identity formed by talk radio is an example of filling a void that the church should have filled and filling it in another way. Hmm. And if the church had been, intentional about building a very, very solid group identity, just like Jesus was. Jesus was very, one of the first things Jesus did when he started his ministry is to start building group identity. How did he do we, that? That's what we commonly call a, the Sermon on the Mount. And he's yeah. basically telling, telling us what kind of people we are. And, uh, mm -hmm. and Jesus basically, if you kind of condensed his, condensed his Sermon on the Mount down just to phrases, it's like we are a people who... Like we take God's commands seriously and we're a people who reconcile to other people as quickly as possible. Mm. And we're people who are careful to obey God in our sexuality. And even with glances and thoughts that Jesus talks about, yeah. uh, we are people who remain faithful to our spouses and we, and we're careful. We don't take oaths and things like that. He goes on and on, but he's basically telling us in all sorts of different situations in life, what's it look like to live in God's kingdom? Hmm. So, so one, one of the things I did in one of our trainings that I, I would think would be useful for some churches is to institute. So I'd had a five-week training that I would do at our church. And in one of the weeks, I would institute a, a, a week-long media fast. Mm. 
No form of media whatsoever. There no TV, no movies, no magazines, no uh, smartphones. You know, they could use their phone to communicate, you know, to text and to make calls, but no social media and no ESPN or anything for a whole week. And it was really surprising. People's reaction was negative at the beginning. And, but when they came back the week later and we unpacked it, they said, I had no idea how much empty and free time I have. And that God is happy to talk to me during that time, especially driving to work with the radio off. That was one of the biggest complaints is I don't, it was so hard at first to drive with the radio off. But after a while, I realized what's one man told me, I realized that's like, some very precious time that I've been missing. Yeah. Well, and sometimes our consumption of media, it desensitizes you to, to the way that God wants us to see the world. Yes. Like, like I had the opportunity when I was graduating from high school to spend six months in Africa where there was no media, there was no TV, there was no movies, there was no radio, there was nothing. And I was shocked when I came back and turned on the television of just like the things that were on there. And it, and it, it wasn't that big of a deal compared to things that are on now or to even, but it was like my sensitivity level had gotten so numb watching it every day that it, it wasn't until I took a break that I started to rediscover what, I don't know, like what that actually was. Yeah, I, I had that same experience. I lived in Argentina for a year and came back and was shocked at what how I felt and how TV seemed. It seemed just so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And uh, But again, those are things we should be talking about, and we should have a well-developed group identity around television, around Netflix and movies around social media. What does a child of God look like in those arenas? Hmm. We, we need to develop it in very specific things. Jesus developed it in very specific areas of life and he modeled it as well. What do you do when you're insult when someone insults you? Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus, we have some very good pictures of what, how Jesus handled being insulted. What do you do when people want to take you and make you king? Well, that happened to Jesus too. So we have all this group identity and that, and we tend to not get a wide enough, vast enough development of a group identity so that it touches all these very specifics, like, you know, how much time I'm spending on social media. Mm-hmm. How do you define the boundaries of a group? And I guess more importantly, how do you enforce them? Well, enforce is not a word I probably would use because... <laughs> That's fair. From our previous episode, Hesed is really forming a family relationship. Right. So that our church functions as a family and not just a lot of churches might say we're a family. This is my spiritual family. But I'm talking about your brain actually sees a group or at least a subgroup, depending on how big your church is, that these people are my family, meaning I will I will be bonded to them for the rest of my life. Hmm. So it's more that kind of an attachment where these are my people. These are the people that I can speak anything to. These are the people, even if they move away. You know, and maybe they come back and visit when we're together. We're back into the thick of life again. It's a deep yeah. and it's a permanent relationship. Yeah. And how do you how do you tell the difference between a strong group identity and a cultish identity? Because hmm. I could see those those lines blurring when you have a bunch of people who are devoted to each other, who are creating common rules 
seems like throughout history, those environments have been manipulated to become cultish. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, cults tend to have a very strong group identity. Yeah. And very yeah. strong hesed. So these things, these these uh, nutrients that we put into soil, our relational soil can also be used for, for negative ends as well. Hmm. Um, but cults, one of the things a cult tends to do is they... Um, they tend to want to cut you off from outside relationships. Hmm. Sometimes even your family, your previous friends, um, and a healthy group identity would never do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, A healthy group identity would relish growing in my group identity and then being around other people and shining it to them in a, in a very um, winsome and beautiful way. Um, But there's not this kind of isolation. And there's also, Cults tend to be very closed about um, many areas of doctrine and things that are not necessarily black and white in scripture. Mm-hmm. And so they, they kind of, they can tend to major in the minors. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's another sign too. That would be a, a piece of group identity that would be formed is that um, we let people have doubts and we stay with them and gently remind them who, what G- G- Jesus' people, what the kingdom of God is like on earth. And we maintain our chesed love with them because, because at the end, our relationships are bigger than the problems we have. And if someone's struggling with some certain part of portion of doctrine, the best thing we could do is love them in it. Mm-hmm. Now I keep hearing you making these statements about, we are a group who are yeah. those your group identity statements. Those are, are, are a sense, the format we'd always don't always say it in that way, but it's a, it's a sense, you know, it, it kind of harkens back to, uh, one of Jesus's followers, Peter, who wrote in his first book, he said, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of God's special possession. Mm-hmm. And so he's essentially creating, God is creating a new people, a new group of people that are inhabiting his kingdom. Um, and so, and then we remind each other who we are because the rest of the world does not operate according to the, to the values of the kingdom of God's kingdom. So that's why we need to build it into us. Otherwise things like t- television and, um, political radio shows will form us otherwise because we're not being formed by our churches where we should be being formed. Right. What are some other uh, group identity statements that you, that you have in your groups? So a, a big one is we are, we are people who I did just mention that we are people who keep relationships bigger than problems. Okay. And a lot of churches that are really doing good ministry and are doing powerful changing ministries, um, one of the dangers they can have is they become so convinced of the, of the importance of their ministries that they start play, play, uh, placing that ministry and their vision of that ministry above people. And so they, hmm. they essentially sacrifice people on the idol of the vision or of the ministry. So a solid group identity around we always replace relation, put relationships above our our goals, above our problems. That doesn't mean we don't have goals or problems or a vision statement, but we always keep our relationships first. And that's what we see Jesus doing always. Mm-hmm. Another good group identity, too, is, is one around loving our enemies. Because yeah. that's something that none of us would naturally do. No, no, that's pretty distinctly Christian. Yeah. And so speaking things like we are a people who bless those who curse us and who love our enemies. And we share stories of loving our enemies. And we even share stories when we fail to love our enemies and ask people to remind us who we really are. 
and make that a centerpiece of our discipleship. Dallas Wheeler said, uh, you know, a discipleship that doesn't end with us loving our enemies is not really working very well. Can you walk me through how would you correct somebody? So let's say you're, say I'm having a trouble with a friend and I'm not acting in a loving, well, let's say it's an enemy and I'm not acting in a loving way towards them. Right. If you saw me living outside of those values, how would you approach correcting that behavior? Would you, or would you wait for me to bring it up? How does that work? So first of all, I'd make sure that you and I have some hesed. Yeah. And I would start out by, by affirming our hesed. And it's like, I would say something, Jeremy, I really appreciate our friendship. And, uh, and I look up to you in a lot of areas. And I saw in that, that argument you had with our friend that it occurred to me, and, and I'm, I'm just open to you seeing what you think about it, but it's, it seemed to me that you might have forgotten who you are back there. What do you think about that? Hmm. And that starts, that starts a discussion. And then, you know, if, if we've been training in that in our church, you might, you might tell me, and I've done this to my wife, you might say, okay, I think I need you to give me a, a message of correction. You know, Jim calls them healthy shame messages even. He, he's kind of out there with it. <laughs> like there's a healthy type of shame. Yeah. When he first said that, we, all, our whole group was like, wait, shame is bad. You can't call it that. Uh-huh. So I even today use that healthy correction message. Yep. And I might say, Jeremy, we're not a, we're not a people who, who treat people with impatience and angry words. Instead, we're people who are very, very, very patient with others, even when maybe they don't deserve patience because – that's the way God treats us. We, mm. uh, we've done so many times we've done things that God could have easily just backhanded us, but he's incredibly patient and kind and tender. Mm. Something like that. It's really more of a reminder. It's like, Jeremy, you forgot who you, were, who you are. Let, allow me to remind uh, to mind who we, what kind of people we are in this kind of situation. Yeah, and it just reminds me again how important each building block is because – there's no way that a conversation like that could happen if we didn't have joy and we didn't have hesed. It's like that that conversation of healthy correction wouldn't be received very well. Right. The order is important. You know, we need joy to build hesed. Hesed allows a group identity to be formed because it's our people with whom we have hesed. And then for me to correct you, um, mm-hmm. we need to have a, a well-developed group identity. Because I'm pulling from my group, our group identity when I when I correct you and say this, that's not the kind of people we are. I'm assuming you've heard that before. If we're doing yeah. our job as a church, we're telling you who, what kind of people we are in all sorts of situations. And one of those situations is when we lose our temper with a friend. Hmm. And but too often we never we never get down to that nitty gritty detail. We have high lofty theological truths from sermons, but we never tell people how to live in the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell and then show. Yeah, well. tell and show both, and tell stories. Telling stories is another way we do it. Uh, yeah. You know, a high hesed church and a transformational church is very much a storytelling church. You've been listening to the Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. To learn more about the book by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, visit theotherhalfofchurch.com.